4: Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with English champion David Gold about the pressures of playing at home, unwinding with a little reality TV, Hello Love Island, and the all ages inclusivity of bridge. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's it. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? Hi, Catherine. I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, yeah,
1: I am also doing well. What's been happening? Oh, I've been really crazy busy at work. I guess it's just that time of the year and it's just really nuts. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I figured you must have been busy because I was looking at our online game results. And I had expected to hear from you and had not heard from you on this topic. So I'm going to bring it up now. Uh-oh, what did I do? No, no, not at all. It's just hilarious. I was looking at our results. Do you know those day-long robot tournaments? Oh yeah. No, I
1: do one, the free one every day. Yeah. Every day.
4: Do you realize this week we have had three games where we have been within one percentage point of each other? You're kidding. I am not kidding. I am not kidding. So the first one, there was nearly 18,000 players. And this one, I scratched slightly higher than you, 56.95. And you got (laughs) 56.12. I know. The next one. That's insane. I know. The next one, there was nearly 17,000 players. I got 48.39. You got 48.84. Oh,
1: (laughs) my God. We're the same
4: person. (laughs) It's just nuts. And then the last one, out of twenty thousand, not quite twenty thousand players almost, I got fifty-eight point oh three and you got fifty-eight point six
1: (laughs) four. (laughs) Ooh. That's crazy. I know, because we do them every single day. And I do it, you know, I do it with a bunch of people and I see different people and it's always fun. But that is remarkable. That we're so close so frequently. Because I just have this impression that I get like a thirty-six and you get a sixty-eight. <laughs> That's like my over, you know, Gosh. arching impression. But you're telling me <laughs> that on occasion we actually get really close. <laughs> you know you beat me as much as I might come ahead of you. But no, I think it's interesting because I
4: think it actually speaks quite well for our partnership. We're obviously mm-hmm. approaching questions and topics at the table or you know issues at the table in a
1: similar way making the same uh judgment calls yeah. for better or for worse yeah, yeah no i mean it seems it would be interesting to go and analyze the specific hands and see oh if if there was a matchup of course i don't know i'm i i have a friend who probably knows a program for doing just that and i can maybe ask her about that but yeah it would be interesting to to, to do a side by side comparison of the actual hands to see like you know where where we match up
4: it really really would i might see if we can go back and have
1: a look at that cuz i would <laughs> like to know but i think it's fascinating these are eight typically they're eight boards these these yeah. day longs sometimes yeah. i think they're 10 maybe on the weekend the other thing about the day longs that have i just never noticed until recently that they actually put your percentage points what am i trying to say that they, you they put they the, show you your your
4: your cumulative score as you go along where they never used to
1: yeah even if it's in the middle of the day where it you know it used to be like at the end of the tournament they'd say you know this is where you are currently overall but you wouldn't have a sense per board like they've started doing yeah yeah i quite like it i do too but it's it's new right it's not always been I think it is. Well, thank you, Bridge Base Online, for adding that feature. We appreciate it. Now, I'd like to know from our listeners, maybe some people don't like knowing that. I know that I used to be a person who didn't like having my score told to me after every board. I found it unnerving and distracting, but now I'm really kind of used to it, at least playing online. I do like it.
4: I like it. When I'm playing with the robots, I don't like it when I'm playing with real people.
1: Oh, yes.
4: Go fig. Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I guess with the robots, you are it's all about learning. You know, it's all about trying things out. And the stakes are pretty, pretty, you know, for these free robot tournaments. I mean, it's an opportunity. It's great. It's an opportunity to try things out against a very large field. And, you know, if you spent the time, you'd probably actually learn stuff if you went back and analyzed where you did poorly and how people took a better line and my friend does have a whole program that you can run and you can get the the double dummy solution for how you should have played it kind of thing
4: well i wonder if this is a situation now where we've mozzed ourselves and we'll never come within cooey of each other ever again you know <laughs> now,
1: now that we've named it uh-huh no I, that yeah that's funny Yep. yeah <laughs> Yeah, it'll go back to 36 My Way, 68 (laughs) Yours. Hi, everyone. While we have your attention, we did want to ask for your support. Any amount you can give would be most appreciated. It's quite easy. You just go to our website, sorrypartner.com, click on the Support the Show tab and it'll take you to our secure Patreon page. Thanks very much. Now, back to the show. We've had a few letters in the mailbag
4: this week, Jocelyn. Would you like me to read them to you? Well, of course I would. (laughs) Bring it on. Bring it on. Okay, good. Well, our first letter today is from Anna. Anna writes, I play a lot with newer players who will beat themselves up if they did something wrong. I often say WDP, well done partner, when a partner has had a bad board recently and needs some positive reinforcement that they did something right. It's not gloating. I'm just as likely to say WDO, well done ops, when an opponent has declared particularly well or defended really well. So
1: not always gloating. Thoughts? Well, I think it's really nice that she says, well done opponents. I think that's lovely. Yeah. I just know that it can really rub me the wrong way. We've talked about this and not everybody agrees. And so could she not say WDP in the private chat to the partner? And would that not help reassure some of her newer, newer playing partners just as much as doing it in front of everyone? I don't know.
4: Uh, Yeah. And okay. So if people are doing it to gloat, fine. I expect really that most people are just saying it because they're excited and they're wanting to encourage their partner. Right. It's just that some partners need more encouragement than others. I know what you're saying, Anna. I still think maybe it comes across the wrong way.
1: Yeah. Especially if your opponents are aware that they did something really bad. And that was what won the board for the newbie.
4: Yeah. So, you know, I guess that's the thing, isn't it, about intentions? Not everyone knows what they are. Mm -hmm. Mm. But it's a very nice sentiment, Anna, and I really appreciate that. And you sound like a lovely mentor and it's great to encourage new players and more people should be doing it. So more power to you. Yeah. Thanks for writing. On the theme of confidence, Jocelyn, now you might want to partly cover your ears on this one because you might feel a little self-conscious. I can see Uh-oh. Jocelyn, so I'm going to be able to tell that she's blushing bright red. Oh, no, no. So just assume that she is, because we have heard from Josh from St. Louis, Missouri. and Josh writes, hello, Catherine and Jocelyn, but let's face it, this one's mostly for Jocelyn. I discovered your podcast about three weeks ago, and I enjoy it very much. He's trying to get caught up, but he wants to write to us about the podcast theme music that Jocelyn created. <laughs> Even though we say it in the credits, people might not realize that Jocelyn... Jocelyn composed out theme music and it's fabulous. Anyway, Josh writes, the keyboard rhythms are varied and fun and the eight measures of music remind me of the play of the hand. I imagine that I'm the declarer in a major game at match points. The play is progressing as normal through the middle measures of music, but as measure seven approaches, I decide <laughs> whether to take a finesse at trick 12 that, if successful, will gain an overtrick. As I lead toward dummy's remaining ace-queen, I insert the queen, and the anticipation of whether my right-hand opponent can produce the king is an anxious moment. That anxiety is brought to life by the keyboard trill in Measure 7 <laughs> of the theme music. Fortunately, the mood of the music in Measure 8 suggests that the finesse is successful, and my 42% <laughs> board for making 4 turns into a 70% <clears throat> board due to the overtrick brackets two pairs didn't bid game (laughs) jocelyn i hope this letter draws more attention to the fact that you are responsible for the theme music thank you
1: you know that's amazing and so (laughs) so nice to hear i was trying to capture the feeling of the play of a bridge hand how you know you have your ups and your downs and yeah and then there and moments of you know where you're going to take that finesse or do something else see if you can drop that singleton king and and it can go well or it can go badly and yeah I'm so gratified that that Joshua picked up on it that's wonderful
4: thanks Josh that's so nice and a number of people have let us know how much they enjoy the music Jocelyn it's so fun so you know thanks for writing and I hope everyone appreciates it and my dear friend Jocelyn is very talented (laughs)
1: Well, it was only after you didn't really like any of my classical music suggestions
4: (laughs) for the theme
1: music that I was forced to try to come up with something a little more poppy.
4: Well, you did a great job. Thank you. So just segueing on the the theme of red faces. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and my face is red, but I love it. (laughs) Our next letter is from Tom in Chicago. And it's about an embarrassing moment. I was playing speedball on BBO. It was the last board with these opponents. After a pass or two, the opening bid was three spades followed by a double. I thought to myself, that is a takeout double and I have six hearts and seven high card points with a void in spades. So I bid four hearts, thinking that my partner showed hearts with the takeout double. My partner then bid four spades. I thought he must have first round control in spades since he is bidding the suit that the opponents had preempted and he's interested in slam. I had the ace of clubs, so I then bid five clubs to show my ace of clubs. The opponents doubled and everyone passed. So, to my surprise, I was playing five clubs, doubled, vulnerable. The dummy came down with jack, xx in clubs, and I knew I was in trouble. I had ace four times in clubs, with a void in my hand and a singleton in dummy and only seven clubs between us, I thought I'd better try to cross off as many tricks as I could. The best part of the hand was when the clock ran out and I was down five tricks for <laughs> minus 1,400.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank God the clock
4: ran out. Oh, my God. I knew I had to put this board behind me quickly and start a new board with new opponents. It wasn't until a phone call from my partner after we finished playing that we reviewed this board and I realized that he had made the three-spade preemptive bid and the opponents had made the takeout double. I had mistakenly thought that the opponents had opened three spades and my partner had made the takeout double, which is why I gladly bid my hearts and showed my ace of clubs after what I thought was a four spade control bid. And then he's actually just reiterated to please don't use his last name (laughs) because (laughs) he'll never find another bridge partner.
1: (laughs) This is not that hard to do online. I did this playing with you not that long ago. Like, you opened and I didn't respond because I thought it was the opponents who had opened, the one no Trump or whatever it was. I mean, it was just like idiotic. Yeah. No, sometimes though, for some reason, I know what you mean. You kind of get a bit confused about who's who. It doesn't happen that much, but every now and then. and Yeah. 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 But it's it doesn't happen face to face, I don't think, at all. Like, you know. <laughs> just as well. At least I guess it could. Now Watch it happen the next time I play face-to-face <laughs> and I'll eat my words.
4: Oh, I'd be very surprised, Jocelyn, if that ever happened to you at the table, but hey, you never know.
1: Oh boy. Watch this space.
4: <laughs> We've also heard today from Paul in Alberta, Canada. Ladies, I love your podcasts. Thanks, Paul. They have had a very positive impact on me. I started playing rubber bridge with my mum, dad, and brother as a team. I played at university. We would start right after dinner and only stop when someone had a class next morning. (laughs) I also played a little duplicate with my dad after my mum died. Then I stopped playing to have a family and a 45-year law career. I came back to bridge three years ago at 72. My, how things have changed over those five decades. After two and a half years of online bridge with the same people, per Sorry Partners Advice, I recently found a very patient mentor with whom I could really play up. We played in open pairs in a sectional last weekend, my first serious competition ever. My goal was not to come last and we didn't. We scored 48.8% over 52 boards. I even won 2.04 master points. Going over the results, I recognized Kay Fung's name from your podcast. Oh, kismet. Yeah. And then he says, we scored 60% on one of the boards we played against her, which really boosted my ego. <laughs> I'm sure she wasn't so thrilled about that, Paul, but I totally get it. It's nothing better than getting oh, a good board against a top player. Yes. But
1: it's nice to hear that you're you're back playing again. That's fabulous. So great. So great. And very respectable result for your first time out. Glad you got those master points. Definitely. Well done. And our final letter today, Jocelyn, is
4: from Anonymous. Ah. Uh-huh. And the subject line is passing a happy two. (laughs) While waiting for my turn to bid, I try to plan what to bid under various scenarios. One night in a team game, I had a one-triple-four hand with opening strength. I was second to speak and decided to open one diamond if right-hand opponent passed and double if right-hand opponent bid one or two spades. So right-hand opponent passed, but somehow I thought he'd bid one spade, and so I doubled. Needless to say, commotion ensued and the director was called. The director said he needed a minute to determine the ruling, but he said he thought I could do what I wanted, but my partner would be barred. He told us he'd return with a ruling soon. Several minutes passed as he studied the rule book, at which point we told him that we were okay with partner being barred. We just wanted to continue to play. So he agreed and partner was barred. I decided not to guess what to do and passed. The bidding continued. One heart, pass. Two hearts, pass, pass. Now I know my partner. He doesn't like to let the opponents play in happy twos, which means letting them play in a fit at the two level, and I could see the pain in his face as he was forced to pass. (laughs) The play ended with the contract down two for plus 100 for us. I was relieved that we were plus, but concerned that we might have missed three no trump given that we'd taken six tricks when playing in their eight-card fit. (laughs) That would be 300 to the opposing team and a loss of seven imps. When our teammates returned and we compared scores, I was dreading having to say plus 100 and was all ready to apologize. But I did say it and they said win of 13. It turns out they were in two spades doubled and made three. My partner still hasn't forgiven me for causing him to pass a happy two.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny and this was submitted anonymously it's very similar to the earlier letter writer yeah from Tom Tom well thank you anonymous we love the letter and thanks also to quasi-anonymous Tom who <laughs> wouldn't give his last name I guess that's the uh, the theme du jour yes and concern about our partners oh always concerned about partners sorry partner <laughs> <laughs> that's right Indeed. So if you have any fun stories about making a mistake when playing online that you're very unlikely to have made playing face to face, or perhaps encountering one of our guests at a game and doing well against them, please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message these links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff.
4: Coming up next, our interview with David Gold. And note, this episode comes with bonus audio for our Patreon supporters.
1: English champion David Gold started his career in the sports world as a top junior chess player before switching to bridge in high school. He says he learned most of what he knows about the game from his former partner, Tom Townsend, who was taught to play as a schoolboy by David's father. David has since formed partnerships with Tony Forrester and David Bakshi and has represented England with them numerous times in the European Championships, the Bermuda Bowl, and the World Olympiad. His most recent international partner is Mike Bell. In 2017, he was part of a team that won a bronze medal in the transnational competition at the World Team's Championships. And in 2022, he won bronze in the Rosenblum Bowl. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting or wacky
3: hands lately. Nothing really wacky, but I was playing with a very exciting partner of mine, Andrew Black. We normally do have lots of interesting situations come up, and he held three small spades, three small hearts, queen to four diamonds, and three small clubs, and right-hand opponent opened one spade, and left-hand opponent bid four spades, and I doubled opposite this hand, most people would probably just look at their hand and say, "Well, I don't have anything I'm three, three, four, three. I hope my partner's got four tricks and pass." But my partner, who believed the vulnerable opponents vulnerable against not and in these situations, he thinks that they usually tend to make it, he actually believe it or not, bid four no trumps two places to play he, I don't think he decided which two places he had yet, but he just <laughs> didn't want to defend four spades doubled. He heard me bid five clubs. I don't know whether that was one of his places, but it didn't matter because the opening bidder bid five spades and everybody passed and that went one down. In the other room, they, the bidding started the same and they passed four spades and that was an easy make. And as it happens, we could get out to five hearts, which I, I actually had six hearts. One 633 three was my shape, and we only go for 300 against the 620 or 790. So he was very right even though it might look a little crazy.
4: Wow. And so did that cause a bit of discussion in the postmortem?
3: I mean, as a team, generally, most of us do believe that you believe opponents when they're vulnerable. And certainly when we're at favorable, we believe in just not sitting these doubles. When it goes 1-4 and they're both bidding, just so often they make. I mean, if someone opens four and they're gambling on their own, it's a bit different. But when they bid 1-4 and they're unfavorable, just so often they make. So maybe there's something to be learned from the hand. Maybe I should have just bid as well, but my hand, I had Ace-King-Ace in the minors, so it looked like I might have defense, but we still couldn't beat four spades.
4: Thinking about one of your regular partners, what would they say is your greatest strength when it comes to the game?
3: I'd like to think they would just think that I was very calm and relaxed and that I never get too wound up, but who knows what they would actually say, but that's how I think of myself, never get animated and I'm not argumentative, so... That's, I'm guessing, what they would think about me.
1: And has that always been the case, that you've always been a calm Ridge player?
3: Yeah, pretty much. I had maybe one phase where things you know, were going on in my life, where it made me slightly less calm, but only by my standards. Other than that, I would say I've pretty much always just been very relaxed.
1: What would a regular partner possibly say is something that they wish you did differently? Or is there something that you wish you did differently?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, I wish I could play better. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't everybody? I hope they do.
1: What aspect of your game in particular?
3: I think that my declarer play could certainly be better. I would say it's my weakest area. Sometimes I'm in good form and and I'm playing the hands really well, but I do sometimes have tournaments where definitely, particularly in that area, feel like I'm not just quite seeing the ball clearly. That's the area I would most like to improve and become more consistent on.
4: How did you get started playing bridge?
3: I was always aware of bridge because my father was a bridge player. So there were always bridge books lying around the house and he was always lying on the floor dealing himself out hands. And I'd grown up playing lots of card games with him and I was also a chess player. But I actually learned the game when I was in the lower sixth at school. That's the penultimate year before leaving school. So you're about 16 or so. I was at a boys school, so it was boys playing. I saw them playing cards in the common room and I asked them what it was and they told me it was bridge. And I'm like, oh, I know a bit about bridge, teach me how to play. And that was that. Obviously, I went home and said to my dad, oh, I'd learned bridge and he had books and he progressed me from there.
4: And so for how long were you able to maintain a parallel interest in chess?
3: About another couple of years. My father told me, trust me, now that you've discovered bridge, you're not going to play chess for much longer. He also told me, because I was pretty good at chess, he said, you're not going to have a clue about bridge even in another 10 years from now. So be prepared for that. And he was correct on both fronts, I would say.
4: Why do you think that bridge is just so much more captivating or pushed chess out of the picture?
3: I just think it's got more dimensions. I mean, I love chess. It's still a passion of mine. I follow it and watch it. But there's just so many more dimensions to bridge. You've got the partnership element, the different areas of the game. I also think the bridge world is more interesting, exciting, the people in it, from my personal experience.
1: Who are the more interesting and captivating people that you've met?
3: One of them is my most regular partner in England, who I mentioned on the hand before, Andrew Black, who founded Betfair, which is the world's biggest betting exchange, but I actually met him even before he founded Betfair when he used to play Small Stakes Rubber Bridge when I was just starting. And then he sort of disappeared for 10 years and founded Betfair and became famous and then got back into Bridge. And then the last few years, we've been playing together again. So he's not surprisingly extremely interesting. I'm lucky enough to play a lot with Zia, who I probably don't need to say much about, but obviously an exceptional personality. I could honestly list so many people. I would say the most interesting are not necessarily the people that are famous for their bridge, but often people that are famous from other endeavors that they've done in life, but who are captivated themselves by bridge. Don't know him at all, but played against Bill Gates, for example. And there's just all sorts of interesting, famous people playing bridge. And it's not so true in chess.
1: Do you have a favorite tournament that you love to play?
3: Yeah, I love the Iceland tournament, which is normally in January. Just a wonderful event, wonderful atmosphere, never a director call, never a convention card. Love Reykjavik, great restaurants. It's just love having.
1: Is that the one that people get very dressed up for?
3: No, no. I mean, I, dressed up in a sense that you probably want to keep warm, but no. It's nothing fancy. Anybody can play in it. It's normally. 90% Scandinavians, quite a few Brits go over, the odd American. It's not a top, top level event, but it's a decent standard and just very, very good fun.
4: When you're playing, is there ever anything that makes you nervous at the table?
3: My nerves are generally pretty good. I would say that I get most nervous if I'm playing people that are good friends of mine, strangely enough. The less close I am to my opponents, the less nervous I'm likely to be. But I'm not a big nerve sufferer. I had more nerves when I was younger, but I don't get many nerves these days.
1: Why do you think it is that you get the most nervous when you're playing against friends?
3: I think I sort of feel under pressure to beat them somehow, but also they're my friends. So I sort of want them to do well, but I kind of know I have to beat them. To put the other extreme, if I'm playing people I don't know at all, there's almost no expectation. I'm happy to beat them and it's not a big deal or that memorable or I'm not bothered if I don't. It's hard to explain, but that's the way I think about it because I just don't normally get that many nerves, to be honest.
4: Do you think that it's partly because you feel more visible for who you are when you're playing with friends? You know, if you're playing just with someone you don't know, whoever the opponent is, they probably know who you are, but you're like, whatever. But when it's somebody appear do you feel that they see through you a little bit or into you a little bit?
3: Yeah, I think that is a very fair point. Uh, Yeah, I think you're right. That's probably true.
4: So then, in a sense, you want to present yourself well. When you say you want to beat them, what you mean is you don't want to lose.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not like I'm desperate to sort of beat them into the ground and kick them about and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't want to lose to them. Right. Maybe it matters more. I don't know. But that's... That's all I can say. I know because I just have to think, when do I feel nerves? And I know that if I'm going to play my closest friends, I feel nerves. I know I don't necessarily even want to play my closest friends. Happened to me recently in the World Championships in Rotslav in the first knockout match, we selected a team of English players because we felt that was the best thing to do. But on the other hand, it meant particularly one of the pairs were my former teammates of 10 years, who I know very well, but I, I didn't want to play them really and felt under a lot of pressure playing them. And I don't normally feel that way.
4: I wonder if that experience is the experience, say that I'll just talk about myself, that I feel when I'm playing against a more experienced player, which is invariably the case, (laughs) but I feel that they can see through what I'm doing, that they can see my errors, they can see where I'm tripping up and it embarrasses me. And I wonder if it's not dissimilar in a sense that you're playing with people that you respect and you, you know that they'll know what you're doing or not doing.
3: Well, there's lots of people that I respect hugely and who are going to certainly be aware of my errors who I don't necessarily like, and I don't feel pressure against them.
4: Right. So it's just friends. It's the friends.
3: Yeah. If I'm playing people I'm very close to, I probably feel more pressure playing in my own country as well than I do abroad.
4: Interesting. Why do you think that is?
3: There's very high expectations on me in England. And I'm not saying that everyone expects me to be hopeless outside England, but in England they're extra high because you're in a smaller pool and therefore my status in England is effectively elevated as opposed to where it is in the world as a whole. And people expect a lot of me, so therefore I'm under pressure to perform. So I do find that more difficult.
4: So when you play, for example, maybe at the US Nationals, What's the experience like? How would you describe the difference?
3: I certainly don't feel under pressure. There are so many good players and you simply cannot expect that you're going to turn up to every tournament and win or even turn up to every other tournament or even once a year to win. So the pressure in playing is not especially great, even though the level's extremely high. Whereas in England, in the top events, there is some expectation that I'm going to win one in every not that many events that I play in. So that is, I would say, the big difference between the two.
4: So just thinking again about this notion of nervousness, if we call it pressure, how do you manage that pressure, for example, when you are playing in England and you are more aware of the expectation?
3: It's not really a problem for me. You can go for a walk beforehand. If I'm sitting out, for example, of my team playing, I mean, I'll check every so often what's going on. I try not to discuss too much of the bridge that's going on during the day. To tell you the truth, while I'm waiting to play, I'll probably zone out and watch something quite mindless just to chill out, you know, watch some junk on TV or something.
1: Oh, go on, tell us what, yes, what's your guilty pleasure?
3: Okay, this is a new one, Uh, but I've been addicted to Love Island lately. That's great. I, I recently got into it and I have basically watched all eight English series, one Australian series in the space of the last few months. So there's a little confession.
1: <laughs> That's great. Yeah. How do you like to unwind after a tournament?
3: At the end of the day's play, assuming it finishes at, at dinner time, I like to go for dinner with my team and have a nice dinner and just chat, certainly go through some of the hands, in an, but in a casual and enjoyable manner, and hang out. And then after dinner, just sit around and sort of hang out and chat. That's my idea of unwinding. If the play finishes very late, I certainly can't go straight to bed. I'd go to the bar, not a big drinker, but go to the bar, maybe have one drink or a soft drink and sit and chat and hang out. But I, I like people. I like to hang out with people. Don't like to be on my own particularly.
1: And at the end of a big tournament, what do you find yourself typically doing?
3: At the end of a big tournament, to tell you the truth, I love to just get home and just do really boring, normal things. You know, just hang out with my family, maybe just go for a walk, or maybe have uh, some of the cuisine that is very good here, like, you know, some Indian food or lots of different Asian cuisines, which are really good in London, I go to. Just be normal. That's what I like to do, just unwind and not do anything special.
4: How long do you find that it takes you to feel that you're, you know, back home again?
3: Not that long couple of days i mean often honestly for the first couple of days i will just be enjoying literally you know going for a walk going to the supermarket just doing normal things but it doesn't take me long to adjust and i play so many events anyway that that transition between event and then getting back home is something i go through several times a year i'm quite used to it
1: it's the most memorable or unexpected place
3: where you've played bridge the most memorable has to be when we played in Beijing, China. In 2008, we did very well in the tournament, which made it very memorable. We won a silver medal. We lost to Italy in the final. But I also loved the place. We played in the Olympic Village. they just held the Olympics there. I'd never been to China before at that time. We went, visited the Forbidden City. I loved the city and the restaurants and the fact that there was like no English whatsoever made it very challenging and exciting. And we had a day off where we walked along the Great Wall of China. It was just the most incredible bridge trip of my life. It would be hard to ever top that, I would say.
1: How about unexpected, wacky place that you've played?
3: Well, I mean, if you want the weirdest place, I mean, I wasn't taking part in this game, but as a junior in 1999, I played in a World Junior Pairs in the Czech Republic. And at the close of Play on One of the Days, we went back to, it wasn't really a hotel. It was I, I can't really describe it. It was communal showers. We had a bedroom I was sharing with my partner. It was in the middle of nowhere. And when we got back, my partner realized he'd left the keys to both the hotel and the bedroom in our bedroom. So we decided to sleep outside the hotel. There was nothing else we could do. After a little while, someone noticed us outside and they helped us into the building so we went upstairs and there was a little sort of corridor area outside the bedroom. And I could see that I could physically break the door down to our bedroom quite easily. And I wanted to do that because I did want to go to bed. But I was a little bit worried in this country. I wasn't very familiar with as to how the police force might take that. There was a few chairs and stuff and we just decided to take a few cushions and lie down on the floor and just sleep in the corridor and deal with it in the morning when some staff turned up. And when I woke up in the morning, there was a table on top of me, and there were four people playing bridge, sat round me on top of me. You can't get much <laughs> weirder than that. But I wasn't actually playing at the game, but there was bridge okay. being played on top of me. I think that'll. <clears> I
1: think that qualifies.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you when you were
3: playing bridge? So a few years ago, I was playing a national in America, and I was playing with a regular partner of mine who was. Slightly disabled. So he could walk a bit, but he needed one of those sort of electric, you know, carts that you drive around in. And he'd gone to the bathroom and three of us were waiting at the table and he drove back. And as he was driving back, I noticed that he perhaps hadn't, you know, put his sort of underwear back on as accurately as he might have. So as he was driving towards the table, I sort of waved at him and said, you know, you need to sort yourself out. Our opponents were talking and hadn't really noticed. He didn't hear me, so I said, I shouted again, you need to deal with yourself. And as he looked down and realized, he was a bit shocked and he lost control of the car and he continued driving, by which time the opponents had noticed and looked shocked as well. And he drove into the table and they moved to the side. He, knocked, he was knocking the table forward, the billing boxes came off, the cards came off. I jumped out of my chair. And I ran round to the car, and I got the key in the ignition, and I turned it off. At which point, some random joker from the neighbouring table got up and came over and said, uh, "Excuse me, sir, I'm going to need to see your license and registration." <laughs> and uh, I have to say, <laughs> half of the room, and especially the three of us at the table, were just on the floor laughing. We couldn't stop. <laughs>
1: I understand that you probably don't want to go into great detail, but I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding what was so shocking was was something not tucked in properly, or yes, yes, okay. yes, okay, yes, that's what.
3: Okay, I was trying to give a PG version, but it was not yes. that PG actually.
1: <laughs> that is pretty funny.
3: I mean, it was. I was wondering whether to tell that story, but I mean, it honestly is the funniest thing. It's hilarious. uh, I mean, it was unbelievably hilarious. We were all in tears. I mean, I'll never forget it. It's the funniest thing that's ever happened. And the person I'm telling the story of is is no longer with us. So, You know, I'm not going to name them anyway, but I feel that is the funniest thing. That was a great contribution that he made. Yeah.
4: Yeah. What's the biggest schlamozzle or muck-up you've ever made at the
3: table? There've been a few since I had one very recently. I'll tell that one, which was in the World Championships recently in Rottslav. I was in a pretty simple game contract. It became mildly difficult because trumps didn't break well, but I knew that they were they were five one. I knew a lot about the hand because hand on my right had shown a five five hand, a f- sorry a five five or a five four hand. So I had ace queen double, and diamond in hand, and I thought they were king ten to seven diamonds in the dummy. And I knew that the suit couldn't really be anything other than 2-2. So I knew I could play the ace and then the queen overtaking with the king and everybody would follow and the jack would fall. And I could play the 10 and I could throw a loser while the hand on my left roughed with a winning trump trick and it would ensure my contract. So I played the ace of diamonds and then I played the queen overtaking with the king and everybody followed. The problem is the jack didn't appear. So I sort of, my heart skipped a beat. And then I realized Dummy didn't have seven diamonds. Dummy had six diamonds. And what I'd actually done now was I'd now set up a Trump promotion for the hand on my left because the Jack was on my right when I was just completely cold. So I went off in a, a lay down game. I was so upset that I did something possibly even worse on the, I can't remember if it was the next board or it was a couple of balls later and I went off in a cold slab as well. And this was in the round of eights in the World Championships. Uh, It has a happy ending because we won the match anyway. But I did put our team under a little bit of extra pressure and I don't think they were terribly pleased with me.
4: Are you ever awake in the middle of the night replaying hands like that? Or do they just go, you let them be?
3: Yes, I am awake in the night. Not as much as I used to be. I used to just every single hand. Now it has to be quite bad to keep me awake at night. Uh, So it's not something that happens to me every single time I play, but hands like that haunt me for quite a while. But I wouldn't say it's a major problem for me. Luckily, my long-term memory has become absolutely appalling in the last five, ten years, and it just sort of resets itself. Other than the odd thing, I just don't really remember anything, which is quite quite handy.
4: (laughs) That's an upside, I guess.
3: It means I can't remember things people have said to me in conversations with hand. It gets me into trouble, but on the other hand, it takes away some of the stress of some of the worst things that I've done.
1: (laughs) I've noticed the same thing. (laughs) What do you find to be the most annoying thing about Bridge?
3: It's a bit of an imperfect game in terms of sort of directing it and playing it. It, it. It's a game that relies on people being very honest, but you don't get punished for not being honest. And a game where the directors can't really run it properly. I mean, take the issue of slow play. You get this thing where the directors come to the table and say, who's taken all of the time? And my response is always the same. I say, I don't know. I'm not i am not an umpire. I'm playing bridge. I have no idea who's taken more time. And you get ruling situations where it's very difficult to work out what the correct ruling is in so many situations. So I just think it's a little bit of an imperfect game. It can't be run in as accurate a way as to For example, chess, which just sort of runs itself. You have a clock and there's not really many infractions that you commit and it runs. And when you do, they're easily governed. Bridge isn't like that. And I think you could often be punished for being more honest than other people, as an example. So that's something that annoys me, but I don't know if there's an easy solution.
4: What's the best thing about Bridge?
3: There's many great things. I would say the best thing overall about Bridge as a gay man the bridge world, although I don't know if that's what you're asking, to me is there is no age in bridge. You can compete at a table where you could have, well, there's obviously only four players at the table. You could certainly easily all be in a different decade. I've been at dinners where people in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s are around a table and no one feels like there's any difference. And my best friends range in age spanning 50 or 60 years easily, as do my bridge partners. And I notice it when I talk to my friends in the non-bridge world, I call them muggles, actually, that they will often make comments about, oh, it's a bit weird that so-and-so is hanging out with so-and-so. I'm like, what do you mean? They go, well, the so and so's 35 and they're 50 or something. And I'm like, not really. I mean, my regular partner a Bridge is 76 and we'd go out, have dinner together, have a few drinks together. I don't even think about it. So for me, it's the lack of age in bridge is what I most love about bridge think It's the best thing about bridge.
1: Is there a hot button issue in bridge these days that you're particularly
3: passionate about? For me, it's certainly the issue with cheating. And I would extend that to just playing the game in, a, in an honest manner. Because of some of the things I mentioned, it's a very hard game to direct to police, as it were. So in order to play the game in the best way, we're, I believe, heavily reliant on each other being respectful and honest. And although that aspect of the game has improved a lot in the last several years, there's certainly room for improvement more. And that's the thing that I'm yeah, most passionate about, most concerns me.
1: What do you see are some of the steps that need to be taken to
3: ameliorate the situation further? I think some people need to be educated on how to behave. And I think those that can't sort of have to go into the naughty corner and just not be allowed to play in the main events. There are actually even events already being run, which are attempting to cut out people that are just not prepared to play the game in a respectful manner. I mean, I'm all for um, everybody's playing together and people and rehabilitation. But if people can't behave properly and can't play the game in the right way, then I really just think that they should be cast away and can go and play in their own events with the people that play in, in that manner.
4: Why do you think this issue is so important to you? Did something happen to you or have you witnessed something that stands out that particularly bothered you or is it a collection of experiences or...?
3: Well, my entire bridge career up till 2015, which was obviously a big year because lots of cheating pairs went down, I had basically never played in a, a tournament at high level. The result of had not been significantly altered by cheating. So effectively, I feel like the first 15 years where I was playing internationally was just not necessarily meaningless. I was gaining experience and I was enjoying myself. But the results on the podium, you just only have to look, were just littered with people that were completely outright cheating in the game. So I feel very sad about that. I do feel it's been a lot better since. But there's still cheating going on. But it's not even just the cheating. It's just people who I don't trust when I play them. And it's not lots of people. But there are people who I don't trust or who behave badly and spoil the enjoyment of the game. And so that's why I feel strongly about it. And I think we've got to club together to make it better. And and we can all only do it ourselves.
4: Are there any books that you've returned to over and over again or that you particularly find yourself recommending maybe to developing players?
3: I must admit that I don't often recommend books to developing players. I don't often get asked, but my personal favorite book was Play These Hands with Me by Terence Reese. My father had a lot of classical bridge books around, like the Bridge of the Menagerie series, lots of Reese books and all sorts of books with very old hands and old stories. And I loved all of those, but Play These Hands With Me was my favorite. So over the shoulder style, I love the way that it's written. Um, And that was a book I read many times. I guess I would recommend that book since it's my favorite.
1: Do you have a favorite
3: bridge convention or gadget that you really enjoy playing? I have a couple, I like playing Smith-Peters in defense. For many years, I didn't play them, but since I got converted to them about 10 years ago, I virtually feel I can't play without them. And I also, I mean, everyone plays it, but I love keycard, you know, keycard Blackwood. Everyone plays it, but they might not use it as much as I do Love it. You mentioned
1: first Smith-Peters. Is that the same as our Smith-Echo?
3: Yeah, so smith I mean, we call it Smith-Peters in England, uh, I guess it's smith echo in USA don't know what it is in Australia but yeah that's the same thing
1: are there any conventions that you really dislike and when a partner suggests that you play them your heart sinks
3: I'm really not a fan I don't know if you call it it's not really a convention but I'm really not a fan of ACOL in general which is weak no trump and four card majors I don't mind weak no trump it's the weak no trump in combination with four card majors so sorry to all the Brits out there, but I really don't like Acol and would prefer not to play it, but I can play it. It's what I grew up with, but I'd really rather not.
4: What's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given?
3: I don't know if this is exactly the best. There are lots of good ones, but this is something that's in my mind because it's relatively recent. I've played quite a lot with Zia in the last few years, and he has... Many good tips. I've learned lots from him. One of my favorites is that we have a rule, and this applies for teams. It doesn't apply for match points. If we're in a a constructive auction, it's a game auction, and you know from your hand, you have a fit in a minor, that five of a minor is going to be safe, and you might make six. You never, ever stop in three-no trumps. You always look for slam. You never, ever just stop in three-no. If you're 95% confident you're going to make five of a minor, you always look for six. And that's a tip that I have found really impressive and has really helped my constructive bidding in, in a sort of is it a minor suit slam? Should I stop in three no? Should I go to five minor type situation?
1: What kinds of bidding gadgets might you need to explore the minor slam?
3: You probably want to have some situations where you can bid a cheaper key card than four no trumps. Maybe some form of being able to use. Four Diamonds When Clubs Are Trumps and Four Hearts When Diamonds Are Trumps. But you need to agree when it applies. That's probably the most important, I would say.
4: David, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Yes, thank you so much. It's been great.
3: Goodbye. Thank you very much. It's been really interesting talking to you both.
1: And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, David Gold. Thank you also to our sorry partner posse of listener supporters who make the show possible.
4: Sorry Partner is produced by Katherine Harris with production assistance from Paul Chirasso and Jade Gray. Our theme music was composed
1: by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to Podcast at gmail.com or at Podcast on Instagram or send us a voice message and please consider supporting the show. You'll get a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on
4: side. And remember, as David says, he and Zia have a rule that when playing teams, if they know from their hand that five of a minor is safe, they never stop in three-note trump. They always look for slam. Thank you, partner.
1: Thank you, partner. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.
0: (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.